millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Tamara Thomas, editor-in-chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the DocWire family of medical news sites. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headlines. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started. Hi, I'm Tamara Thomas and welcome to Urban Health Weekly where we talk about medical news and health topics that matter to you. I'm here with Jackie and Lou. How are you guys? Good. How are you guys doing this week? Good. I'm okay. I'm good. Good. I'm doing good. I uh, gave uh, some, some uh, test tubes of blood this morning. Uh, oh. So I'm kind of recovering from that massive uh, uh, blood donation. Don't all laugh at me. That big blood donation? How much blood did you give? Uh, Three three little test tubes. Three, oh. It it wasn't Okay, all right. Uh, I mean, the worst part was, whenever I do anything, I always do it first thing in the morning to get it out of the way. And uh, for whatever reason, I wasn't able to, I guess it's vacation time or whatever. I was only able to get a 1040 and of course you can't eat. So I, I wake up at 5 a.m. and I'm going crazy because I can't have my coffee. So that makes me even more crazy. Mm. Um, then I can't eat anything and then I start getting hungry. And uh, then as soon as I get in there, um, which I, I had a 1040, the people from 10 o'clock showed up and it was like a, Lovely. Family, a family of eight. And, oh my God. But I was in. <laughs> first and then they got in but I had to go to the bathroom because I was holding it in for my uh, urine exam or whatever yeah you told me about that and I was just like why in God's name are you holding just go you'll make more like (laughs) you don't have to torture yourself and I was like drinking a full like bottle of water like on the hour and going to the bathroom on the hour just to see if I could produce urine I I, I have no idea what was going through my head and I do all of this because I, I don't want to go like the seven different doctors for seven different tests. I just go and get one one of these Uber tests that have everything, the men's health. Uh, yeah, but who interprets them for you? Well, they, they have AI. It's interpreted by the lab and AI, and then it has patterns of, of stuff over the time. And it's it's emailed out to your uh, doctors on file. So they That's get it. Kind of interesting. Yeah, they, I, I think they're a little pissy because they don't, you know, they don't get to charge you for the visit that says, oh, you got to go take your test. And then the visit, oh, here's your test. And then they have nothing Wait a minute. Say. Did you have a referral for this? No, you don't need a referral. They, you, you get it once a year. So you didn't need a referral, but your insurance paid for it. You, you pay a $6. If you don't have a referral, you pay a $6 charge. To a the $6 layout. copay? Wow. I'm pretty sure I don't have that in New Jersey. Yeah, you pay a $6 copay and you don't need the doctor's referral. It's sent to the doctor. Hmm. Their own internal doctor says, you know what? It's it's okay. Because I only do it once Oh, so it doesn't go to your primary care doctor. It goes to their doctor. Well, their doctor approves it. 
and then it's emailed to your primary care as a CC. So it's kind of like um, the when we were doing the PCR tests. Yeah. How they have their own doctor on, and the doc you have to fill out the questionnaire, and then right. the doctor. Ah, okay, that's pretty right, so cool. It's pretty convenient, but that is convenient. I mean, yeah. everything seemed to have worked. The only thing is, my blood pressure was a little high, which they attributed it to me being crazy at the time. They say you really do. And you, <laughs> you probably let them believe that. And, well, <laughs> I was crazy at the time because you know it was a whole big thing that the eight people who tried to go ahead. I was going to say a family of eight tried to sneak in front of you. <laughs> Well, they had the 10 o'clock appointment. They just never showed up on time. I, I showed up at 1038 because we, we timed it. I timed it so that I would be there exactly mm -hmm. when, when my appointment was. I did not want to wait in front of the place. So when I got there, there was nobody there and I had 1040. So they said, come right down. And then they give me the urine cup and then all these people come in. And then I hear this whole hubbub and then they're trying to get ahead of me. But... Uh, justice prevailed. The, the person, oh, they, the manager there said, no, 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 we, we're going to do you. <laughs> we'll see you guys next, but. Yeah, usually when you're late, it's like you have to, you have to wait now. You can't just come and bump people who are on time. Yeah, so, so we did all of that. And then when they would do my blood pressure, because they had a different, uh, I guess they call phlebotomists to take your blood. Mm -hmm. So there was another phlebotomist and, uh, that phlebotomist was doing the family of eight, but they started with the youngest child first. Which always takes oh, the longest. And the screaming, it, it's because, you know, they, oh. one of them, but you know, this, this kid might as well have been getting his head amputated. When I was a, when I was a teenager and I used to take my little mm -hmm. sister to the, to the doctor, what I would always do is I would get the shot first so that she can see that it's not so scary. And right. then the doctor would do her. Right. The pediatrician. Right. So, so oh, basically, they had like four family members holding this kid down. It, it was crazy. Oh my goodness. And, um, yeah. and uh, you, you know, it's just hard to settle down for that. And then they said, so. So I, that's I, why your blood pressure is high. Yeah, it was 140 over, 140 something over uh, 91. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, that it's explains not, it. That, it's not ideal, but they, they said, you look a little. You want to do it again? And, and I said, nah, it's okay. You should have done it again. It, it wasn't going to get any better. It was only going to get I know crazy that, there, but, but just, <laughs> I know it wasn't going to get any crazy. I know it wasn't going to get any better. I was better, concerned but... that they didn't label my urine right. You know, and <laughs> they didn't go, I know where your urine is. And I'm pointing at it. That's my urine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. What so, a anyway, I am. I'm, Everybody had a lot of laughs, and, and I said this all with a smile, even though I had a mask on, but I guess she saw that I was smiling. Yes, um, if you give her the smiles. Yeah, whatever, whatever it is. That's that when is. you smile with your eyes. That's a tire Smile bank. with your eyes. Yes. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's when your eyes little, crinkle a little, yeah. and then people know, like, oh, they're smiling. Yeah. yeah so, so anyway, I gave her a smile, so, mm -hmm. so it all worked out. Well, all's well that ends well. I hope that your test results come back and you're happy with your next show. I'm just gonna tell you, oh, I'm gonna live forever. You're gonna and, tell and us how perfect you, you are again. <laughs> you're not gonna help shame me. Anyway, <laughs> this week we're gonna talk about medical transportation and security. I talked to um, Elias Simpson of Mod of Care. That's a medical transportation and meal delivery company about it, and. Um, it's definitely a company to watch and you'll hear that interview later. But first, I just want to vindicate myself because I felt like the village idiot standing on a box shouting gibberish last week. 
when I was talking about the monkeypox thing and I'm like, I'm concerned and you should be too. Vox came out with an article stating that yes, monkeypox is a real threat. And they're also saying experts are worried about monkeypox butting up against um, immunocompromised populations, which could be deadly for them. You hear that? Wow, wow, yes. And get this, the New York Times just reported that monkeypox can go airborne. I saw that. Uh, You were right. Yes. So I'll add those links to Urban Health Weekly. You know, you can read them at your leisure and you'll see that I was not an alarmist about this. (laughs) I'm cleared. Moving on to medical news of the week. (laughs) Yay for me. (laughs) That's right. Pat myself on the on the back. I told y'all this was serious. Anyway, I still don't really like that they were slanting towards like, well, some groups are more susceptible than others. Poppycock, let's stop saying that and let's assume that everybody is equally at risk, okay? It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time, exactly. Well, uninformed breast cancer patients are making treatment decisions. Women with ductal carcinoma in situ or DCIS, breast cancer, are generally uninformed about their diagnosis and are making uninformed treatment decisions, according to results of a study presented this month at ESMO Breast Cancer 2022, an annual meeting of the European Society for Medical Oncology. The standard of care for women diagnosed with DCIS includes surgery with or without radiotherapy. Even low-risk patients who are increasingly being steered toward active surveillance with annual mammograms but few patients understand their diagnosis well enough to make informed decisions about treatment, according to a study led by Ellen Engelhart, PhD, a postdoctoral fellow at the Netherlands Cancer Institute, Amsterdam. You're not able to really have an informed preference until you understand the choices, she said. Engelhart and colleagues surveyed 200 patients, mean age 59 years old, from the LORD study, L-O-R-D study, which is currently underway at the Netherlands Cancer Institute. The women were asked to complete a survey before treatment decisions were made. Their objective was to determine how knowledgeable patients were about DCIS. They found that only 34% of the women answered four out of seven questions correctly. 19% of patients believe that DCIS could metastasize to organs other than the breast. 31% did not realize that DCIS could progress to invasive breast cancer if left untreated. 79% thought DCIS would always be seen on mammograms and 93% said that progression could always be detected before it becomes, quote, too extensive, unquote. Knowledge of DCIS was found not to be associated with patient education levels. Susie X. Sun, MDFACS, a breast surgeon at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, Houston, said the findings clearly highlight a disconnect in communication between doctor and patient. Well, I agree that people should make informed decisions and I'm glad they realize that the disconnect is providers and how they educate or don't educate patients. Yeah, is there a consensus as to what the prognosis is and what the best treatments are? Or is that, I mean, well, How would you be more determined? They're just they're just discovering this information, and what they're trying to determine is well, what are doctors saying to patients? 
are they explaining this to them? Are they educating them? So that's the next leg of this. So right now they're discovering that patients are uh, uninformed and it's don't not matter. mind readers. <laughs> well, that they're not mind readers and they're not like us who are gonna go and scour the medical right. for, for information. Uh, so, so then that means that the doctors are not informing them properly. I, I think doctors should, you know, should not only talk to patients, they should make sure they understand what was said, like quiz them a little, you know? Can you repeat back what I said to you? Um, or if that's, maybe people might feel like that's condescending, I don't know, but maybe have a nurse or some office liaison take the role, you know, to call them later to make sure, you know, do you understand what the doctor explained to you? You know, do you want me to go over it? Do you have any questions? I mean, sometimes the person probably got the diagnosis and they're like so numb, like I can't think. Yeah, now they can't hear anything. Right. But, you know, when the dust settles, you know, um, I think someone should be there to explain exactly what it is and make sure they understand what's being said to them. Um, what are your thoughts on this, guys? I agree with that. That's a great idea because, um, <laughs> like you just said, as soon as you get your diagnosis, your brain kind of shuts down. You're too busy thinking like, what did I just hear? And um, it's so easy to miss, especially when something so emotional as, um, as cancer, mm -hmm. it's so easy to miss. You really want somebody to uh, check in with you. I like the idea of, uh, of a patient advocate of sorts or somebody who really is yeah, they really need to build that into the into their system. Like, have a person to make sure to follow up and say, "Look, I just want to go over everything with you. I want to make sure you understand, you know, what everything is, what was said, and what are your treatment options." In a way that doesn't make the person feel dumb or feel like they're being talked down to. And I, and I think that's something that's really essential because you you what you don't want is an uninformed particularly when it comes to cancers, you don't want an uninformed populace, right? Do you, do you get the impression that certain cancers have like a better infrastructure for help? Like I feel like breast cancer has a better sort of system uh, in general. Do you get yeah. that impression? I do, I do. I think prostate cancer and breast cancer in particular. Yeah. Um, I think colorectal cancers coming up is, is, is getting to that, that point, you know, because there's just so many more cases. Uh, and people are, are thirsty for that knowledge. Um, lung cancer used to be once upon a time. I don't know if, if people are still as, I don't know, it's not the sexy new cancer. So I don't know how much. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know, maybe clinicians have a different take on it. I'm just, you know, coming from a lay person's perspective in terms of what I see um, um, as far as like what the literature uh, is pointing to, et cetera. Lou? Well, you know, I'll go back to a story, a cancer patient or survivor uh, analysis once told me that when they were told um, that they had cancer, it was one of those movies where you hear the lips going, but there's nothing coming out. Right. Yeah, like, but, uh, yeah, yeah. And they yeah. Said that was exactly their experience. And this person was a lawyer, you know, somebody who's a trial lawyer, somebody who's used to pressure and used to everything and they said that once those words were uttered right once, the voice just the fact that you, you just see lips moving right the rest of the conversation was a complete blank mm -hmm. and when they got home they just sat there and they said well what did they say and they had no idea 
And then they had to call back and get another appointment. And of course, the, the doctor was nice enough to repeat themselves. Um, but that doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen. And uh, and I, I really do think that, you know, once that happens, that aftercare is absolutely crucial to your compliance, decisions that you need to make, et cetera, et cetera. And I noticed that uh, a lot of these, these hospital systems now, they have like um, support groups that, uh, that people can join. So that's another good thing. But I think more importantly, you want to get your clinical information from part of the team. And I think part of the team, this is just my opinion, part of the team should be a person that follows up, kind of like a coach almost. And, you know, to just to make sure that you understand that you're not getting lost in the sauce and that, you know, you, you, this overwhelming information is not like going over your head. And that's all I have to say on that. All right. Many black cancer patients say they aren't offered the chance at clinical trials, survey finds. Big surprise. Nobody offered Stephanie Walker a clinical trial when she was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. Nobody talked to her about what her options might be in clinical trials. She didn't have a nurse or patient navigator either who would guide her through the treatment process. It was just me, the oncologist, and his PA, Walker, a registered nurse and patient advocate with the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance, said. It frustrates her to look back on that time, especially in the context of a new study that she found and other patients and patient advocates led that examines the experiences of black women with metastatic breast cancer. According to the study results that Walker presented at the American Society of Clinical Oncology or ASCO meeting, the majority of black women with metastatic breast cancer don't get enrolled into clinical trials. Only 40% of black respondents said they were even offered a trial, but over 80% would consider joining a trial if they had known about one, Walker said. Nobody comes to talk to us about clinical trials, the discrepancy, she said, arises at least partly because of institutional biases and preconceptions about Black patients. I find that it has happened to me because I'm Black. You've already formulated an idea that I'm not educated to know about trial, or maybe you think I don't have the money to participate, she said. Patients do not pay to participate in trials or for investigational drugs, but may incur costs for transportation, childcare, or lose income from not working. One of the most salient results was that 60% of Black respondents were never offered a clinical trial or had a discussion about one with their provider. Much of the bias is often on the clinician and researcher side. They'll say, well, they can't make it to the trials because it's going to be extensive and they're going to need transportation. But how do you know that? The researchers already spoken for the patient and made up a story for why they can't make it, he said. There are also biases in the way clinical trials are designed that make it harder for many people of color or people of low socioeconomic status to participate. We need to make it easy for them to participate. So many ridiculous things we do that aren't necessary, like these narrow windows that say that this scan or that procedure has to be done exactly at 12 weeks plus or minus two days. It's just not convenient for the patient. Her day off is Friday and she can't get it plus or minus two days. And trials are also often not designed with inclusion of black participants in mind, Walker said. For instance, the incidence of certain comorbidities that are higher among African-Americans may result in exclusion from a trial, even if it may not have an impact on a drug's performance, Walker said. 
We're excluded a lot because of high blood pressure or diabetes or something, she said. Hmm. Well, this isn't news to me. Studies have always been devoid of patients of color. And they do come up with like a, impossible standards that whether they know it or not, exclude patients of color. Yeah, who is included? Because those are really reasonable things for everybody to, you know, who, who's got constant transportation? Who's got, who doesn't have blood pressure issues and diabetes? My God. Well, the thing is, is that because they, they want these people who have no, uh, because they want their drug to work. You have to be like independently wealthy or solvent so that you can, you know, financially solvent and, uh, and well, have nothing else to do. It's almost like you have to be retired. Right. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, a lot of these clinical trials happen in the more um, well-financed. Um, ah. And if your insurance doesn't cover you being part of, you know, going to, to doctors in that network and in that institution, then you're not going to be included in those conversations. And so that's, that's often, excuse me, that's often what's happening um, in these conversations. But I think a lot of clinicians also, you know, have this like foregone conclusion, like, oh, they're not going to trust us because of Tuskegee. Well, look, Tuskegee happened a long time ago, and a lot of people don't really know about Tuskegee. So, I mean, you can't keep beating that old drum. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, if your drug is a superior drug, then your drug should work whether someone has diabetes or someone has high blood pressure. But, you know, they, they, they make a lot of these, um, these restrictions because they want their drug to perform optimally. It's not really about where well, we're excluding people because we don't want Black people, we don't want Black people to cure. It's like, it's not convenient to their end. Does right. that make sense? So that's, yes. that's, that's, that's the way I see it. Lou? Uh, you know, exclusion can be in a lot of forms. And, you know, exclusion, one way is like people ask and they said, nah, you, you don't qualify. That's sometimes exclusionary because you do qualify. But in this case, people don't even know that they're supposed to ask. They don't even know that it's there. You know, they, they right. don't even know that that door is there. So, right. so it, it's about making. I think that's people, a blind spot also yeah, in, in with yeah. a lot of doctors. They assume that, that people they, of color know, doc, don't trust. Say, well, they weren't interested in it. Well, they weren't interested because nobody told them and it wasn't part of the clinical business. Right. You know, uh, they, they weren't, you, you didn't have enough time to, to tell. And again, it goes to the, the less affluent. And right now yes. I'm just saying less affluent. This is a disparity that could affect anybody. But if you don't have the proper insurance, sometimes you're locked you, And the proper insurance means that you're locked in with everybody else. And what happens is your clinician has 12, 10 minutes. Yeah. And in that 10 minutes, they don't have time to give you too many options. They got time to- But, they, but you know, some of these physicians have time to give them to other people. Well, so. that's what I'm saying. I'm not making excuses for the physicians. Yeah. I think they have to find time. Yeah. And I think there has to be parity of care here where everybody gets equal explanations, equal, equal viewpoints, and equal options. And to me, this is about options not being presented. Yeah. Not people being, and, and that's the exclusionary thing mm -hmm. that all your treatment options are not presented to. Right. So that has to change. And maybe it's giving people printouts so that at the end of the visit, they realize, hey, there was something that we didn't even discuss, which will lead to discussion. I mean, I know 
in the society we all hate paper and everybody's digital and everybody wants to be fast and all that but sometimes something can be said about paper man i see let me tell you when i go to my visit i see these these older ladies and they have folders with mm-hmm. sheets and sheets and sheets yeah. and so that's still a thing like there are still yeah. a lot of people who rely on paper so yeah and you know back back in my day when i was really working for pharma um, you know, one of the things that they insisted on was patient guides. And this was a good thing mm-hmm. because in patient guides being given to patient a point of care. And uh, the pharma company would do this because they felt, obviously they felt it was their best interest because more people would, would do more treatment. But at the end of the day, the good thing about the patient guide is it explained to the patient all these things. And as we said in our previous segment, that sometimes the patient visit your head is going crazy or the previous, previous one where I had my appointment and then eight people walked in and then I'm trying to be ahead of <laughs> yeah. so, so it'll be a sheet like, so you have colorectal cancer. Now what? Something like that. Yeah, these are your options. And then uh-huh. this is your type of cancer. Right. Uh, and these are the clinical trials available to you. And if you are interested in them, then maybe give them a URL on the, on the, uh, yeah. on the, on the email. I gave them that. You got to hit them with all three. You got to hit them with paper. You got to hit them with digital and you got to hit them with verbal. That's, you know, if it's proper advertising, because, you know, I, I am going on here about the world of advertising, but one medium, one medium means either TV or digital or voice, or I'm telling you, one medium only has a 56 to 60% recall. Mm. You're only going to remember it 60% of the time and 60% of what was told to you. When you add an extra medium in, so let's say you see a print ad, if you hear that same print ad that you saw on the radio, and that's another medium, your recall goes from 60% to 82%. That's an interesting stat. Yeah. And when you add in a third medium, like let's say you see that on a bus or something like that, Mm. your your recall is almost 90-something percent. So... And it stops at some point, the fourth medium and the fifth medium, you know, it's 92 to 90, okay. yeah, 92 to 94, big deal. But you've got to realize, and the doctor's got to realize that only 50% of what they're talking about is being absorbed during the visit. The person may be worried about their parking like I was. The, the person may be, anxiety well, was a little close to a hybrid. The person may be worried about what's going on around them. A million things may be right, going on. Right, right. You can't rely on the fact that everybody's going to do everything. And then what happens is the person doesn't react the way you want them. And then you make choices for them as a practitioner. Right. That shouldn't be. Right. So really what has to happen is that visit has to be uh, the follow-up with a secondary person so that that message is repeated again. That person has to have, you know, an email with a website that they can read it at their own leisure Follow up. Did you look at the? Did you look at the handouts? Have you had time? Ask them. Do you have any questions? Yeah, because a lot of people don't do their homework. This is almost like homework, and I know yeah. it's saving their lives, but you, you can't assume that people yeah. are going to jump. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Not everybody's good with homework. Right. No, and life happens. You, you know, right. you, you just got it. And it may not be cancer. It may be anything. Right. You know, and, and all you may have hypertension. You may have glaucoma, something that's not life-threatening at that time. And, and you know what? You're more worried about your parking situation, getting your ticket validated. Picking up your child. Uh, picking school. up a kid that, that comes out, uh, being late, being early, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, you've missed out. You know, you just, you know, you just pick up a script at the at the pharmacy at best, and you don't even know what's wrong with you, what your options were. Am I getting the right thing? So yeah, so, I still think there's something to be said for having somebody as part of that team who they're oh job definitely making sure to do that patient outreach to make sure that people don't fall through the cracks, and and making sure that the patient and the clinician are on the same page. Here, here. All right, so let's take a break and then we'll be right back. And we're back. And we are moving on to this week's topic, which is transportation insecurity. Transportation insecurity is defined as a condition in which one is unable to regularly move from place to place in a safe and timely manner because one lacks the material, economic, or social resources necessary for transportation. According to the NIH, transportation barriers are often cited as barriers to healthcare access. Transportation barriers lead to rescheduled or missed appointments, delayed care, and missed or delayed medication use. These consequences may lead to poorer management of chronic illness and thus poorer health outcomes. Transportation is a basic but necessary step for ongoing healthcare and medication access, particularly for those with chronic disease. Chronic disease care requires clinician visits, medication access, and changes to treatment plans in order to provide evidence-based care. However, without transportation, delays in clinical interventions result. Such delays in care may lead to a lack of appropriate medication, chronic disease exacerbations, or unmet healthcare needs, which can accumulate and worsen health outcomes. Poorer populations face more barriers to health access in general, and transportation barriers are no exception. In 25 separate studies, 10 to 51% of patients reported that transportation was a barrier to healthcare access. This is very significant because when patients cannot get to their healthcare provider, they miss the opportunity for evaluation and treatment of chronic disease states, changes to treatment regimens, escalation or de-escalation of care, and as a result, delay interventions that may reduce or prevent disease complications. Ultimately, transportation barriers may mean the difference between worse clinical outcomes that could trigger more emergency department visits and timely care that can lead to improved outcomes. Since patients who carry the highest burden of disease face greater transportation barriers, addressing these barriers to avoid worsening health seems logical. While there may be differences in transportation barriers based on ethnicity or geography, 
They may disappear after accounting for socioeconomic factors such as income or insurance. Additionally, studies that reported low rates of transportation barriers to healthcare access often did not include more vulnerable populations such as lower income or uninsured patients. You can read the entire article on Urban Health Week. It's a very long one. There's a table that cites numerous articles on the subject, but um, we don't have time to get into all of that. So it'll be on Urban Health Week too. So thoughts, people, thoughts on, on, on transportation and security. I noticed in that article, they said that it was like 82% of the people who regularly make their appointments had a car or had access to a car. That's crazy. So, I mean, what about all the public transport in, you know, more of an urban setting or? That's the thing. Sometimes transportation is not, is not available, not reliable. Sometimes you don't have money for to to get the the transportation. Sometimes the transportation doesn't exactly. Let's say you're a person you're you're in a maybe a wheelchair or a walker. Oh yeah. You got to get to your appointment mm -hmm. for X time, which means you have to be out the door for Z time. If you're in a, a zip code, let's say where the bus that you need to get to. Oh yeah. Doesn't come regularly and you miss that bus, or you can't get on that bus because it's so crowded that they can't accommodate your, your wheelchair or your walker. Mm -hmm. um, because there's, let's say there's strollers or it's just crowded because there's just not enough buses on that route. How do you get to your appointment on time, right? Let's say they reroute the bus, then what do you do? What if you have, what if you, the bus only takes you a certain length of, of the way and then you have to figure out and it's not wheelchair accessible? then how do you get to your appointment, right? So there's all these barriers. Let's say you're pregnant now. Let's say you're pregnant and your feet are swollen. You don't have a wheelchair because you're pregnant. It's not like, you know, you're an invalid, but mm -hmm. you know, you're extremely pregnant and you can't get to your prenatal appointments for whatever reason. Maybe you don't have the money. Maybe you've got to only have enough money to pick up your child, your other child from school. Right. Money. You know, these are the types of situations that people um, find themselves in, and then they have to choose between their everyday needs um, and their and their health care. And guess what's going to take the back seat? Yes. So that's when transportation insecurity becomes uh, a huge burden on people who really need the care. And let's say this person has just gestational diabetes, let's say, and, and needs to see a clinician, but can't. Well, I'll give you a story. Ready for another story? Yes, story. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. So my parents use what's called Accessoride, which mm -hmm. is something here in New York. I know. Mm, something here in New York that allegedly is a service that gets you mostly to your health care, uh, for your health care transportation. That's what it's supposed to be? Yeah, pretty much. It's, you know, if you're an invalid or you have... Because I know people who have taken the... Oh, I'm going to the, I'm gonna get to that. To I'm the gonna, <laughs> I'm going to get to that. Yeah, exactly. So my parents, you know, I've said before, my dad's 91 in a wheelchair. My mom is 87 and not much better. When they go to their doctor, they take accessorize. Well, getting to the doctor ain't a problem. The thing gets there on time. The aide and them are all ready or we're ready. But Whatever group is there ready to put them in the accessoride is fine. Then you go to the appointment. Now, these services insist that you tell them when to pick you up. 
But you uh, can do that because you don't know when you're going to be seen and when you're going to you. be finished. Thank there you. could be eight people who suddenly show up in front of you. Right. And that's what happened to them uh, last week. <laughs> I see what you did there, Jackie. Yeah. <laughs> a whole line of people. Yeah. So, so anyway, what, what happened is all of a sudden the bus shows up to pick them up. They're not ready. In fact, they hadn't uh, seen yet. So the bus went away. said, call us when you're done. So, of course, when they're done, they call them, which they're not like me. I would have called them like two minutes later. I'm done, even though I wasn't, and have somebody else show up. But they called them when they were done. And then, of course, now there's a wait. So what happened was they were out there for almost an hour. Oh, my You know, they're wow. at dad's 91 after two or three hours in a wheelchair. He's not feeling so good. They got to get him chewed. Oh, wow. The whole rigmarole. And then what they want to do is not go to their next appointment. They said, ah, I don't think Yeah, it was so much aggravation. It was so much aggravation. I think they'd rather die. So at, at the end of the day, you know, that's what, what we're, we're facing here. I'll give you another accessor ride. Yesterday I was at the supermarket. Today is trash accessor Today, today is <laughs> trash accessor I'm trashing the people that use it. So... <laughs> I'm at the supermarket yesterday getting some stuff. I forgot what I was getting. And, the, you know, ahead of me, there's a lady. She, she's got a full card. And you know how there's always taxi drivers that say, right. do, do you want to live? But I guess this guy was a regular Well, in the hood anyway, but yeah. Yeah, yeah so there were the people there. They I never you. see that outside of Whole Foods. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, you don't, you know. But, uh, but, but, but in the hood, it, and it's great because... You get help, you know, you're, you're helped with the groceries to a car. It takes you home, blah, blah, blah. Now, somebody goes, would you like help? And, and the nice, nice, uh, I call her young lady. Uh, you know, she might have been a tad older than me. Says, oh, no, today I don't need you. Uh, I've got accessoride coming. <laughs> and they're like, what is this, Uber? Yeah, you know, you, you know, come on. Was it $2.75? It's $2.75. So I got, I got accessory coming to get me. And I'm there like. So accessory is not exclusively for medical well, transportation. You know. It's definitely not essential, but it's not medical transportation. It's supposed to be for medical transportation, but they don't. They seem to take they, advantage they of the non-essential the part. Shop, but they don't say, uh, where's the, where's the doctor? You, you know. <laughs> You could have been going in there to get your uh, medical supply. I, I mean, there are definitions where I could say, okay, this is this is why I used it. Uh -huh. While I got my prescription, I also picked up some groceries. Yeah, but I'm telling you, I looked in that cart and there was a lot more Fritos than there were medical supplies. In fact, I didn't see any medical supplies. Oh, wow. So at, at the end of the day, and I'm at, look. And then she, so she's using it for, for groceries. I guess which is her want to do because they right. haven't said and, and, that. And, and somebody told us the other day that they use it at the airport. And um, and, and hey, look, I, it's uh, it's all right, I guess. It's scandalous. It is scandalous because then you have like 90-year-old people waiting outside the doctor's office. Because, For hours because, because they have to wait. Right, exactly. So in concept, this is a really good service. And I don't know what needs to happen here. I mean, do people have to be more judiciously? Do we have to smack people in the face or in the hands when they're not doing it? Do we have to do like, uh, I forgot who, who did that, like the Catch a Predator show, you know, uh, 
Oh yeah. Ah, in the in the in the, the camera is like ambushing. <laughs> you got groceries. You got groceries. Point is the doctor. So you feel bad now. If you could all tell, I watch trash TV or. In hindsight, do you wish you hadn't used? Accessoride to go to the oh my gosh, I'm feeling sorry to feel sorry for accessoride. <laughs> well, well, I will say this that uh, Elias Simpson is the he's the um the the um, vice president of mobility at Motive Care, and Motive Care does not take you to the grocery store, they take you to your medical appointments, and I think they'll take you to the pharmacy too. But um, anyway, so I, I want you to, to, to listen to this interview uh, and, and let's get into it now. I'm Mara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of Urban Health Today, and I'm speaking with Elias Simpson, President of the Mobility Division at Motive Care, a leading provider of non-emergency medical transportation, personal care, remote patient monitoring, and meal delivery. He's here with us today to talk about transportation insecurity and the underserved. Thank you for being here today, Mr. Simpson. Uh, thank you for having me, Tamara. Very excited. All right, let's get started. So tell us about Motive Care. Who are you, what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So at, at Motive Care, um, we are a technology-enabled healthcare services provider. Um, we focus on providing connections to care. So when you think about um, the uh, social determinants of health, zip code is actually one of the uh, key determinants for a person's health outcomes. It's, a, it's actually a better indicator than genetic code. Um, and so when you look at mode of care and our mission and, and what we're trying to do, um, we're addressing those social determinants of health to reduce cost and improve the outcomes and experience for the patients that we serve. So uh, we do that through things like safe and reliable access to transportation, access to healthy food, remote patient monitoring and, and personal care. So can you walk us through the medical transportation challenges for the underserved? What happens when patients can't reliably access regular medical care? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, first and foremost, with, without um, reliable access to care, um, their, their health deteriorates. Um, so if you think about uh, an ex a, a great example and, and probably one of our most common examples is a patient who needs uh, regular dialysis. So the ability to actually uh, make those dialysis appointments, you call it three days a week, um, um, you know, from a rural area where, where, they, where they maybe don't have uh, great access to a facility, typically we can meet that patient where they are um, and make sure we get them to their dialysis chair to, to receive their care. So that that provides better health health outcomes for that, for that member and that patient, as well as um, reduce cost overall by avoiding further issues uh, if that patient wasn't able to get that regular dialysis treatment. So um, in the end, we're, we're helping the members, we're helping the patients, we're helping the facilities, um, and we're helping to, to reduce overall health cost, healthcare cost, um, by, by ensuring that these patients get access to the care that they need and deserve. Well, how does Medicare compare to and differ from Accessoride? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not super familiar with Accessoride, but I, I do know a little bit about them. Um, from, from what I understand, they're, they're more focused on um, those with disabilities and, and getting them to uh, where, where they need to go. Um, I, think, I think for the most part, yeah, there's, there's kind of pickup points that you can, uh, almost like a bus stop kind of, uh, system. 
at Motive Care, uh, we are actually working through health plans, uh, primarily Medicare, uh, Medicaid, Medicare Advantage. Um, and again, we're meeting our, our patients where they are. So we, we can do multiple levels of service, um, what we call ambulatory, which is you know just kind of a general uh, health appointment. We do um, folks in wheelchairs, uh, as well as um, anything from mental health, substance abuse, um, and we do also have stretchers. So in terms of the level of service we can provide, it's, it's a little more comprehensive. Um, and also we are specifically working with health plans. So unlike uh, Access to Ride, where they're just focused on people with disabilities, for us, it's anybody who's eligible through their health plan for the um, supplemental benefits that, that we provide. So that's not just disabilities, that's uh, ambulatory people, that's uh, pregnant people. Exactly. Right. And yeah, so, you also wait for them, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So again, we we are a door-to-door -door service provider for the most part. Not everybody needs that door-to-door -door service, but mm -hmm. but if that's a requirement for, for the member of the patient, we absolutely can provide that door-to-door -door service. Um, you know, you think about somebody who's maybe in an apartment in a wheelchair, we can actually get up the, you know, get up the stairs and help them down with the wheelchair. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, again, we, I mean, we go down, we go down country dirt roads to pick people up, um, you know, whatever it takes to, to get that member. Again, we're about meeting the member where they are. So, so for us, um, absolutely, we'll wait on those members. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll go to where they are. And not, not everyone needs that, needs that level. So we do have some on-demand services where um, members are using more of like a ride share model um, and just calling a ride on demand. So again, you think about the, uh, the example used around maternity pregnant women who, who are looking for um, an appointment, we can, we, we do a lot of on-demand work in that space. Does, do you know, does Medicaid do any outreach among their recipients to make them aware that you're, that's a service? Yeah, yeah, typically, yeah, and again, it, you know, again, with, with Medicaid, it, it very much varies by state and by plan, um, you know, so uh, each plan is a little bit different. But for the most part, um, they, they're typically making sure the members are aware that they're eligible for supplemental benefits. Um, but if the members aren't sure, they can also call us and, and we can verify their eligibility and, and help them figure that out. So, um, you know, again, it, it varies a little bit by state in terms of uh, how the members and patients are made aware. But if, 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 uh, if a Medicaid member or, or Medicare member was unsure, they could reach out to Motive Care, and we would uh, we would be able to verify their eligibility for the transportation or any of our other supplemental benefits on personal care, remote monitoring, or, or meal delivery. So, are you available across the country? What markets? What markets are you in? Yeah, so again, um, in terms of our full suite of services, when you look at the transportation and the, and the home business, the personal care business, we're available pretty much across the entire country, um, but we don't necessarily offer every service in, in, in every market well, today. Transportation. Uh, transportation, we're in 33 states. So today, in, in, uh, from a transportation perspective, we're, we're operating in 33 states. And again, um, pretty much within those states, we, we uh, cover the whole state typically, um, but we're, we're typically working with certain plans within that state. So we may be working with the state itself and their Medicaid team, or we may be working through the MCOs, um, through United and seen et cetera on their plans. But, um, you know, we're looking to expand. So, so today we're in 33 states, but, but obviously we wanna to continue to grow and, and expand our transportation network. Uh, is there a way for um, Medicaid recipients to sign up for your services? Is that is that how that works? How does that work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. So once a once a member um, determines they're eligible, or if they're trying to determine they're eligible again, um, 
there, there's several ways that you can sign up for our services, sign up for transportation. Um, if Again, if you're a dialysis patient and you have regular appointments, we can do what's called a standing order where you call us, you call in, we verify your eligibility, we set you up with a, with a standing order. Um, the facility can also do that on a, on a member's behalf. Um, and then we'll just have a transportation provider arranged to come pick you up, um, you know, three days a week for the next, you know, 12 weeks or whatever your, your, uh, your, your need is. Um, you know, again, for the on-demand uh, work, you can, you can just call us or we also have an app. Um, we have a Motive Care uh, member app where you can go into the app um, and request a trip, uh, sign up for the services. You can have a family member go into the app for you. So, you know, when you think about the digital divide, not everybody's necessarily tech friendly. So um, you think about an elderly person who, who's looking for services, their, their, uh, their, their child or, 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 uh, or, or someone could sign their parent up through the member app for our services as well. So there's, there's several ways to, to sign up, but um, the majority of folks today do call in through our contact center, but uh, as we continue to improve our technology, more and more members are using the uh, Motive Care app. Um, and then again, we work directly with facilities to, to allow them to sign their patients up as well. Just to circle back, um, what kind of data do you have on um, when patients can't reliably access um, regular medical care? Yeah, there's there's tons of studies that that show again going back to to the zip code data, um, and I, I can't cite specific stats, but if, if I mean oh, if you okay. if you yeah, but if you if you look at the data, it shows typically that when when a patient is is in a zip code that they lack that that easy access to care, um, their health deteriorates, uh, so they're less likely to make their preventative appointments. Um, they're less likely to make those, uh, again, like think about things like dialysis, chemotherapy, they're less likely to be able to make those regular appointments. So, um, and, and a lot of that comes down to just um, the willingness to, to, to kind of go out of the way to, to, to make that travel and it's, when it's not easy. So um, what we do again is to try to make it easy for the patients and, and meet them where they are uh, and, and eliminate some of those barriers. And what kind of um, challenges are you encountering in say uh, medical desert areas? or areas where the, the care is so far away, we're not talking tens of, right. we're talking hundreds of miles. Are, are you in those uh, areas? Yeah, well? yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, we, we have, again, with our comprehensive suite of services, we have uh, solutions specifically for that. For example, um, we have a company that we own called Provado, and they really specialize in going into those rural areas. They have somewhat of a ride share model, but um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go into a, a great example is in California, kind of central California, where you've got, you know, maybe it's 80 miles to the nearest facility. We, uh, we sign up drivers in, in private vehicles to pick members up. And so, you know, they'll, they'll leave at 6 a.m. to pick a member up for a 10 a.m. appointment. And um, we, also even, we also even have uh, out of Hawaii, we do some air travel. For, for medical appointments. So um, we're, we're very flexible and, and, and have that full suite of uh, transportation offerings through our, we have over 6,500 providers in our network. So- um, Air travel, that sounds really expensive. All of those different options, services. Sorry, say that again, Tamara? No, I was just thinking that air travel, that sounds really expensive and the insurance is covering this? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Again, it's, a, it's kind of a unique, it's not something we do a lot of, mm -hmm. um, but we, but we definitely do it. Um, and, and again, we, we do some, you know, ambulance services as well. Um, pretty, pretty much whatever that member needs to, to get the care um, that they, again, need and deserve, we'll, we're able to service them. 
You know, um, I'm thinking about um, the cost of fuel going up and um, how it's just so much more money to get from A to B. How, how are you guys managing that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we've seen that through inflation, right? So as you think about it, not just fuel cost, but um, driver shortages and wage increases have definitely impacted our business. And, and so we're having to think about how we can be more efficient and, and continue to manage those costs. And there's, there's several things that we can do there. Um, you know, technology can help in terms of helping us to route better, um, do more multi-loads where, we, where we're picking up more members at a time to, mm -hmm. to save on uh, distance traveled. Um, but also, uh, you know, there's several plans in several states that offer benefits that include things like mileage reimbursement and mass transit. So if you think about like this, you know, uh, Pennsylvania, the city of Philadelphia, mm -hmm. um, what we can also do is members who are eligible for the transportation benefit, we can use mass transit to get them to their appointments. So um, that that's a great way to reduce cost for um, uh, in terms of um, the transportation benefit. So taking the bus, taking the train, um, whatever it may be. And then in some of the more rural areas, uh, you have like West Virginia, for example, we do a lot of mileage reimbursement where a family member or someone like that is driving the, the member to their appointment themselves. Um, and, and those are kind of some of the things that we're starting to really focus on expanding to, to continue to manage the cost of, of transportation. And speaking of expansion, do you have any uh, future plans you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think... Um, for us, you know, rotation side, uh, we're, you know, we're continuing to invest in technology uh, as we think about, um, you know, rideshare has definitely been a disruptor and in, 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 uh, the population is expecting that more on-demand experience and that more kind of digitally friendly experience. So we're continuing to focus on that and invest in technology. Of course, we're looking to continue to grow our network, as, as I mentioned earlier, and enter new markets, enter new states. Um, so that's a big focus for us. And I think overall, as, an or as a company, the big focus is you know, bringing together our, our mobility services and our home services, that personal care and, and remote monitoring to, to be able to be that one-stop shop for uh, the member as well as for the health plan. So, um, you know, right now that's a big part of our strategy is how can we uh, take all these supplemental benefits and be that one-stop that one solution for our members and for our health plans. Yeah, that might involve working with um, community groups uh, in order to facilitate that. I'm just doing yeah. off the top of my head thinking about Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Eli Simpson, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.